This week, it was the glittery founder who created the magical brand Merry Merry. That's Meredith Stewart Smith. Now, if you know me, you know I love a good spot of pom-poms or two. I love hanging garlands and sprinkling glitter. So you can imagine this was my woman. I wanted to know not only how she's created a brand out of everything that I love, but also how, how did she navigate starting from that kitchen table nearly 40 years ago and basically getting through the ups and downs of business but also the ups and downs of life and still coming out with this enthusiasm not only for her brand not only for her product but for her team as well where she has worked with some of her team for over two to three decades this is someone that is staggering running a business for nearly four decades. There are so many lessons that can be learned through Meredith sharing her DNA and what's at the heart of her brand. And I just know that this is going to fire up your imagination um, with a garland around your neck and a pom-pom hat on your head. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown Hi, I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not on the High Street, at 28, with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co., I've learned so much about taking risks, running a business and some extraordinary life lessons along the way. And I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realisations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoy this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's Conversation of Inspiration. Meredith, I'm so happy to be chatting to you today. The founder of Merry Merry, a business you founded on your glitter kitchen table um, in 1985. The queen of bunting, a pioneer of the cupcake kit, table confetti, cake toppers. As a woman who loves, loves the detail and loves retail, you are a complete icon of mine. So thank you for joining us on Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you very much, Holly. I'd love to take you back, if I can, to Kansas, where you grew up. And I love this part of the story. So down the street, you lived um, from Hallmark, the HQ of Hallmark, the card card and gifting company. Um, and as a child, you'd make handmade cards and pop them inside your window, hoping that someone from Hallmark would notice them. It's it's almost like you couldn't make up more of a perfect start to your story. Tell me about this. <laughs> I, I don't know, but it's funny when I, I'd completely forgotten about that. And my mother, you know, maybe 15 years ago or so reminded me of that story that I always made cards and I, I just, I'm, I'm a maker, you know, I'm, I'm a maker. And, and I must have been inspired to make cards, maybe knowing, you know, Hallmark was there. Maybe my mother told me Hallmark was there, but I would tape them to the window and just kept hoping somebody from Hallmark would walk by and notice them. And I'm not sure what they were going to do with them because I was probably eight or nine. And was creativity, so you were eight or nine and you were trying to get scouted by Hallmark um, from your, <laughs> from like your living scouted. room? living room window. I I like your entrepreneurial spirit even then, by the way. Um, Was creativity a big part of your childhood? Because I know that you like to play dressing up with your mum and grandmother's clothes. Were you always in a fantasy world, so to speak? 100%. I was that typical child that spent hours and hours in their bedroom making, cutting, crafting bits of paper all over, you know, everything was a project. Colouring, I used to love working in oil pastels, these thick, rich, 
colors that was super messy. Um, when I think about my, you know, they, they, they were, they weren't really the, I just, I think I liked that saturation of color even then. And I still do that, that feeling, um, actually even is in my work now. So that was definitely me hundred percent of the time. That's all I ever wanted to do. And you were a child of the 60s and your mother and grandmother loved fashion. And so it, was that the sort of household you were living in? Was, Ab- was, yeah, absolutely. Was that your environment? Fashion was huge. Um, I wouldn't say they were fashionistas, but they loved style. And both my mother and a grandmother had a really good eye. Very different. So it was interesting. My grandmother was kind of flamboyant. She had a zillion pairs of shoes. She used to say, um, she had a whole closet just for her shoes. And she'd say, do you want to, and I wore her size. So when I got older, she'd say, do you want to go shopping in my closet? Which was fabulous. And my mother was sort of more preppy in her look. I think almost having the opposite to my grandmother. So I think, I think in some ways I've melted two together and I understand both well. Yeah, I, I just, it, it, it just shows you we're such a product of our environment and and it's only sort of later on in life that you can really notice those small things that have now played a huge part in our psyche even and our creativity. At school, were you happy at school? Was it, did they harness your creativity? Did they understand it? I was pretty miserable at school, actually. I'm not, I think I probably would have been diagnosed as dyslexic and, you know, ADHD, all those things that they do now. But in some ways, I actually think they were my superpower as I got older. But no, no, school, I just ticked the boxes. I I wasn't a bad student, but it wasn't for me. And also, Kansas is pretty provincial where I was. So my stepfather was in academia, so our household was fairly intellectual. But I was an oddball. I was a, always an oddball. You were an oddball. Uh, yeah. Uh, and aren't they the best, though? I'm not being funny. <laughs> the, the, the oddballs are always the best. And, and tell me, when you say that about dyslexia and ADHD, and you talk about it very calmly now, um, how, has, how have you realised those things in your life? And, and what do you feel about that? Do you feel, I, I mean, I'm a dyslexic myself, and I definitely feel, and I've spoken a lot about this podcast, and actually um, on our, our website, we've actually pulled together um, the women together. And actually, when you go through all of them, so many, I'd say 70% of the women I've interviewed are dyslexic. So, I don't think that is just by chance. You know, these are famous entrepreneurs like yourself. Do you feel a sense now that you're confident in in saying those things out loud? I think it's nice to have a label. Um, There's a relief in that where before I I thought it was an incompetence and I'd had, I thought I'm flaky or I can't concentrate. And it's very nice to have some labels. Because so, I hear it so often, I, I now wonder, why do we have this label of normal? Like, like Maybe normal is the issue. Yeah, that's right. There's no normal. That just seems like it's too, it's too broad, normal, where it really, so many people I know don't fit in that. But I, going back to it, it feels nice to have it defined. I'm sure you yeah. feel similarly. Yeah, I, 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 and also, I mean, actually, we're talking about creativity here, aren't we? And in a way, <laughs> it would be slightly at odds if you weren't in the 50% that weren't normal. So actually, it's so, you know, if you look yes. at it like that, it's like, actually, thank God I'm not in that group. You know, <laughs> thank you. Um, tell me, you, you, you founded Mary Mary in 1985 from your kitchen table where all the best businesses are founded. Um, you were 28 years old, living in L.A. at the time. Tell me about that vision for the brand and what else was on the market at the time. And actually, just before that, can you connect um, briefly the dots between being the creative odd one at school and this moment that you're sitting at the kitchen table? What happened in between? Ah, it, I had a, I packed a lot in those years. Um, I went to sort of an alternative high school, which you called your teachers by their first name. Nobody knew if you were in school or not. It was a, it was a hippie's dream. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a very poor education at the result of it, but um, somehow I managed to get into university and 
that really didn't suit me because I didn't have the skills actually to sort of manage university. I, I wasn't organized. I didn't really know how to write very well. I could go on and on. I actually ended up with a boyfriend that taught me how to write, which was handy, and moved to California, tried another university that I wasn't that happy. I dropped out and I have always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I was, I think at that stage I had designed some jewelry with blinking lights. It was the punk era. It had little dolls with blinking light, little pins that were dolls with eyes that had blinking lights. It was pretty horrible, but this was very, this would have been on trend back in the seventies. So uh, we sold a few of those and started a little manufacturing thing going on on our dining room table. And that really didn't go anywhere. I had my daughter in 1983, but previously to that, I had a little children's clothing company and that almost worked. Yes. Also, I kind of talked my way into a museum, the Children's Museum in Los Angeles, and became part of their uh, museum education program, creating programs for children. I'm not, I'm not sure how I did that, but that was actually a, an amazing job. And I learned a lot in that job. They, I worked in this section called the Recycled Center. It was a really progressive museum. It was probably one of the first in the world that was doing this. It was gathering recycled materials from all over the industries in Los Angeles. And they had great big vats of like, you know, bits of tires from the old tire factory or cardboard wow. from tube factories. And, you know, a giant almost warehouse size room filled with all this. And then children from schools would come on touring the museum and they, the, the recycled center was just one thing and we would make things from these pieces. And so one day I would set up something like a deli and we would have to, every section would be creating a different part of the deli. So maybe parts of the tire were the bread base or I, I don't really know. And then, wow. so that was a really fun thing. But during all of that, I was, I also had a little business on the side. So I started making children's clothing and it was, tie-dyed because that had come become come back in fashion again and little little dresses for babies which were super cute i had a few women sewing in my uh living room and then i delivered some of those products late to a store and they didn't take them and there i was with all of this fabric and dye all over the kitchen it was a mess. And I just stopped doing that. And then I got pregnant. Can I ask you, why did you stop the, at that point in time? Did you, was it the rejection or the, or the worry? I, I think it was the rejection. It was such, the rejection just felt brutal. And I, I think it was, the business was kind of a mess. Then I was pregnant and I ended up in bed for a few months during the pregnancy. So everything just went pear-shaped and I just parked it. But I'd always made greeting cards and my greeting mm. cards didn't look that different than my eight-year-old cards. They were always cut out. They really, it's true. They were always little cut out pieces of paper, three-dimensional on these little handmade springs that I'd learned to make when I was about six. I, I mean, it was crazy, but I'd make them for friends. And what happened is I sold a few cards. So I went, I went down to a You went door shop. to door, didn't I you? I went door to door and... A salesperson in California saw the cards in a store and she said, would you like me to sell these around California? And at that time, that was pretty exciting. So you were finally scouted. I was finally. You? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how bizarre is it? It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Tell me, am I right in saying that when you started Mary Mary, people underestimated you? So you've had your children... You sort of now, you've had a couple of company, well, sort of, you know, you've had your kids' company, your jewellery, you're, you're going into now this, um, you're a mum, you're a woman, it's the 80s, 90s. Um, do you think that people underestimated you and, and, and what did that feel like? I think in that era, women just accepted it. We just worked around it. I don't, we didn't really give it a voice. So we just we just maneuvered. So, and that's exactly how I managed that. I remember setting up at my first stationary show and I had 13 cards and I had no idea what I was doing. And there were much larger companies all around me and they were all owned by men. And I just, 
I'd ask for help. I'd ask for the names of salespeople or manufacturing advice. And nobody thought I was competition. And I think one, because I was a woman and two, I had these little handmade cards that all looked very handmade. So people were free with their advice. So I think in some ways it actually worked for me because I'm not quite sure they would have given that advice to another man in the same, same way. I could call on any number of those companies, and I did, to ask for help. And they just thought, there's a tap, tap on the head. Of course, I'll give you the manufacturer's details because what they're going to laugh you out of. Right. You know, yeah. I, and, I, and, and they didn't. That's exactly right. And I think it just seemed sweet. I was young. It was, they were generous on that front. No, it was really funny. And today, um, none of them are standing, which is makes me a little sad, but... Sad slash, you know, there it's it's the the stronger person was left. I always think never underestimate a mum, a uh, mum with an idea because mums know how to get shit done. Like really, really, right? A hundred percent. That is exactly right. And we can still pick up the kids from school. Yeah, as well as everything. I, I know you've previously said. I've always loved the process of coming up with an idea and bringing it to life. Imagination is freedom. Was that something you felt at the time, a sort of sense of freedom, having this vision and the idea was you were watching it grow? And how did you go about making it happen? So people are giving you their little black books details and you're jumping on it. Tell me about that confidence to say, I know I'm right doing this. Well, it's interesting, Holly. I think it's out of ignorance, most of it. And that's usually what, <laughs> what pulls Naivety me and ignorance. Yes. Isn't it fantastic? <laughs> right. And I, um, I've never, I started with no money. I still think like somebody that doesn't have any money. So my risks are fairly small. That's been my business profile and that has worked for me. Maybe we would have been you know, much larger, or maybe we would have been gone if I was less ignorant and had, you know, bankroll. I don't really know. But the idea, I get excited by an idea. I feel like I think it a step or two forward, probably enough to get it off the ground, not enough to see all the pitfalls. And I just go. And I, I think that's the freedom that my brain just kind of free associates. It just goes. Mm. Do you think it sounds like you're very optimistic? I'm a very optimistic person. And I think that that creativity and freedom that we're talking about where you don't see the pitfalls, like you, you're not ignorant enough now to know that there won't be them. But in a way, it still doesn't stop you that the optimism within that idea, the vision, you're still willing to put your foot on the gas and go with it. Is that right? And, 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 you know, you've been doing this now for decades. Do you still, do you still feel that that's within you? Yeah, I think it's part of my DNA. There's no question about it. And I, I don't know if you had this advertisement or this toy, it was called a Weebles that wobbles, but they won't fall down. They were a toy and they were sort of bouncy and you could knock them over and then they bounced right back up. And I think, you know, you knock me over and then I'm like, oh, boing. <laughs> <laughs> It's that that's the entrepreneurial DNA summed up in a toy, isn't it? It is. I think it is. I want to get one of those actually. I think that's an absolutely basically a survivor. Yeah, yeah. A, 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 you survive right. through it. Well, you did bring it all to life. Um, you, you know, you, you, you did it um, and your cards were snapped up by luxury New York retailers and you, you, we just spoke about Hallmark and you were on your way. But suddenly you needed lots of kitchen tables, so to speak. You began to grow a network of mums who were all working from home with their own pots of glitter. I'd love to know, this is a model I just... I still love today enormously. I'd I'd love to know more about that and how you found the right people to work with and the crafters and why that was your way of thinking. You know, it was it the power of women almost that you knew um, that lots of people underestimated, but you knew what it was. T tell me about that. And, and what was it? So for those who don't know, what were you doing? Well, it was interesting. Uh, I Originally, I made the cards myself, which I 
couldn't keep doing. And then I had a neighbor across the street who was super crafty and she said I would make some cards for you. So I timed how long it took me to make, you know, a dozen cards. I divided that by an hourly wage and factored that into the cost of doing business and the cost of my cards and then paid her. And then she had another friend who was keen to do it. And the next thing I knew, I had sort of, you know, five or six people in my little neighborhood that were making cards and they were mostly mums that would have been knitting or crocheting. They were crafters. And I realized this was an untapped market. Moms that wanted something to do and now they were getting paid for their craft. And then I started advertising in little local newspapers for crafters and said, ideal job for moms working at home, which I don't know if you could say today. And that worked out really well. There was a a Japanese newspaper out in San Francisco uh, where we advertised because it was very much part of the paper crafting was very much part of the culture. And we actually ended up with a huge section, a, a woman who came by who she ran, she had it for like 15 other women. So she'd come by and pick up the materials once a week. And there was a stage where I had probably 75 women that were doing this. Wow. It was really adorable. And what I found were the laws in California weren't conducive to it. They they wanted me to claim everybody as an employee and the cards could not have sold for more than what I was selling them. So it wasn't, the model wasn't going to work. Mm. I couldn't sell the cards at that stage for seven or eight or $9. And if I had to take on all that weight of what California wanted, I wouldn't have been able to sustain that model. So I went to one of my friends at the stationery show and the company was called Pop Shots. And they made, I don't know if you remember them, they made those really fabulous uh, cutout cards that, were photographic and they were very layered in dimension. Mm, uh, yes. They were really, really great. And yes. they connected me with their factory in uh, Mexico. And that was really the start. So we ended up doing some of the production in the U.S. and then would ship all the supplies down to Mexico and same factory that Pop Shops was using. And then ship it back to the US and then ship everything out. The ladies must have been so disappointed when that happened. They and were. you must have been. I mean, what I a was. beautiful uh, collective of people working together creatively and that output. Um, it, it's, yeah. I understand exactly why it had to happen, but what a pity that you hadn't been supported. Really heartbreaking. One of the interesting things that would happen though, which was I ended up, if I needed people in the office or I needed people in the warehouse, I had this pool of women who now maybe their children were a little older and they were looking for part-time work and I had gotten to know them. So different people came in and became customer service or warehouse managers from my card makers. So love that. It was really special. Yeah. <laughs> I, the power of women coming together. I think it's it just, it, it's, it's like nothing else. Tell me in the mid nineties, you moved to the UK with your English husband and it's been your home ever since. And America is a country that has obviously a reputation of celebration and uh, for embracing all of life's moments. And of course, the UK, uh, we're known for more of a, the traditional tea or the garden parties. Um, so do you think that your work is sort of, I'm thinking of your mother and your grandmother's fashion, you know, was it the, bringing the influences together of both countries that, that, that has inspired a new era within your business? Absolutely. It's interesting how you were able to um, deduct that from the information that I've given you. <laughs> and I think that I was really able to use what I know about the US culture and the UK culture and create products that I could market really well in both areas. So it's been a huge part of our success, I think. I really brought bunting to the U.S. We didn't, we didn't, we had little Really? Gar- yeah, we, we really didn't have bunting. Uh, we, Fourth of July, we had it. It was not, we might have had a banner at a birthday party that would have said happy birthday, but we never really had decorative bunting hanging in bedrooms, you know, triangles of fabric, uh, in the traditional way that was done here. So I, I think I interpreted that 
for the American market through parties, through birthday parties. And mm. even one of our early products was some bunting that you could buy each triangle by itself and create your own sort of patchwork thing with letters on it. And and do you think that sometimes I think, and I'm, um, I don't know what you, sometimes the fusion of two things is almost, it's hard to articulate, is what makes it unique. So for you, it was, you're American, you have the UK influence, you merged parties with those two cultures and out pops your ranges. And I'm thinking about everybody listening now who is creative. You know, it's almost why I say so often we should go back to exactly what our DNA is, who we as a founder are made up of. And understand what happens if you fuse things together, because, you know, that is your unique fingerprint on your company. You know, no one else would have necessarily gone into doing what you did because of what you were fusing together. It's, it's I, I find it, you and I spoke about it off, um, off camera, didn't we? It's almost what makes us excited about innovation. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that really, really had a lot to do with uh, the success and why we were able to turn it into a global brand. And I, I think the other thing that happens when you are an international person or live, you know, as an expat in a different country, you have a, under a deep respect that for separate cultures and that not everything's going to fit in one place or the other. So you, you, there's a clarity. I think a lot of companies come over to a, open up shops or things in a country and then don't understand why it didn't work, even though it 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 almost works. But but our colors in America are crisper and cleaner, and the colors in the UK are a little muddier. And um, mm. so I, I I know the right balance that I and you have to be careful. You could design for nobody. You have to really pick where you're going. Yes. So yes, I, it's not just that we don't have Christmas puddings and crackers are still a novelty to us at Christmas. It's 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 just a deeper thing than that it, so there's all these subtleties that help me yeah, amazing my vision has always been to create a world in which someone just like you can be creatively inspired whether that be through a podcast like this one by helping you find your passion and build a business or to enjoy shopping for thoughtful never before seen products that all support small businesses I'm so proud to welcome you to the next era of Holly & Co and throw open the virtual doors to the home of small business. We do also have a real home, but more of that another time. You'll find a collective of brilliant small businesses, handpicked and curated by me. For many years, I'd envisaged creating a retail experience that truly showcased new creative products and gives you what I call the sweaty palm moment when shopping and celebrates individual stories behind very carefully made items. I also wanted to create a place where you could shop not just by department, but through emotion, the moments in life we don't always share with the world, a place that helps you celebrate the huge milestones, but also helps you find the words or the right gift when darkness creeps in and you just don't know what to say. Big hopes and dreams, you'll agree. But as a listener to this podcast, you'll know that it's these that go on to change the world. And I hope that this will. Head to holly.co to find out more. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Not long after this time, tell me about the digital revolution arriving. And suddenly... It was all about emails. We were all talking to each other in different ways. We were communicating in other ways. And you said in adversity, creativity can flourish. Um, Tell me about how you navigated these times, because only just a moment ago, we were talking about the amazing women coming together and around all their kitchen tables. And of course, you move that on. But it's almost similarly, how did you navigate almost going into that period of time. It really happened with the 2008 and 2009 crash was really the pinnacle of when this started happening. It was coming, greeting at that stage, 
probably 70, 80% of our business was greeting cards and party invitations that were all sold through stationery stores. In the U.S., you would have a, you know how in France, there's a, every village has a butcher, a baker, and a beautiful children's clothing store. And in Germany, they have a butcher and a baker and a beautiful children's toy store. In America, we would have gift shop, gift shop, bookshop, um, a Gap, a Banana Republic, and a stationery store. Every high seat had a stationery store. We, and that's where you would buy greeting cards, stationery, and almost all invitations were personalized. Well, digitization really took a hard toll on those shops. And at the same time with the 2008, 2009 crash, it all sort of came together. There were a few online greeting card companies and stationery companies that started to just take that market away. And I think we could feel it coming. So at that stage, we were very fortunate to have started moving into the party area. And the reason we I knew that this was a successful area there were two things that were happening. One, there was some crazy thing going on with cupcakes. The world, there was a cupcake revolution going on, which in the UK we would have called fairy cakes. You had cupcakes, but they hadn't hit in the same way. In America, we've always had cupcakes. We never had fairy cakes. We like big cakes. You like little, you had, you had little cakes. Now you have big cakes, right? <laughs> <laughs> we take off to the best. <laughs> exactly. So that's where we developed this cupcake kit that sort of went, coincided with the, and it was a natural progression because all of our cards were handmade. They were cut out. So it, we, I used to make these little figurines to stick on top of my children's party cakes. And it was a natural thing. We sort of married it up with the cupcake papers. It took off like wildfire and as the greeting cards were slowing down. So we, I, I just skirted that one because I really didn't have, for lack of another word of saying it, another party trick up my sleeve. I wasn't quite mm. sure where I was, where we were going. I would have made it somewhere. Can I ask though, why did you, so you're saying that you had all these stationery, as you said, in America, you have the, is it like a mama, um, is it a mum and papa? That's how you'd refer to it. Stationery shop, let's just say. Did you, do you, why didn't you take all your cards online? Why didn't you think, okay, well, I'll just become the, the card shop online? You know, it always, online wasn't that strong in, sort of the earlier 2000s. I think it, it, you know, sort of, I'm not, you would probably know better than I do, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a natural on, for, in my mind, I didn't see this as a natural online product. Moonpig would go to prove me wrong, but it felt like it was a, not a high, high enough, um, price point, you know, once you add it in the shipping and the greeting card. And people like to spend a long, lot of time browsing greeting cards. They like that one-two punch. I don't think that uh, software was there yet where you could have opened the card easily. So none of it. And then, and then myself, personally, I'm a product person. I'm not a digital person. I don't think digital first. I think product first. So I've had to learn to start thinking digital creations. But so none of that came naturally to me. So you're in your mind, the digital revolution came along and you were like, okay, well, I need to evolve my offering because that wasn't your instant thing. Let's just put cards online. So this is then when your innovation and and, and where the comment that you made, which was in adversity, creativity can flourish. You started creating new products. Exactly. And I thought the cupcake kits, I thought cupcakes are a trend. I saw it with chocolate chip cookies. I've seen it with other things. Parties are never going anywhere. I knew cupcakes would go back and find their level, but I didn't, I knew that this was going to be a trend for so many years, all these millions of cupcake shops. But it also was very clear the party category sector had not been reinvented in a very long time. No. It was very tired. The illustrations were tired. There was not attractive stuff on the marketplace. I knew because my children were small. So I, at that time, with the cupcake kit, I developed six, eight party collections. And I knew what the good themes were, one, because of my children, and two, from selling party invitations and greeting cards. Mm. I knew if I put a pirate on it, it sold really well. If I put a princess on it, it sold well. So it was sort of a natural progression. When I was starting out my business, so this would have gone back to 
the early 80s. I mean, you know, probably about 87, around there. I was outside of San Francisco at the time. This was, um, I actually started there before L.A., I met somebody at a wedding who was working at Apple and they were developing software and she was pretty high up at Apple. And she said, could I come? I told her what I was doing and she said, could I come follow you around for a week? We're developing programs for graphic designers so that they could do all of their work online and artists will be able to draw, you know, digitally. They'll be able to do it all on a computer. And she came and she with a team and they followed me around for a week and they watched me cut and paste and make all the things. And I said to them, you know, this is just never going to catch on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're never, ever going to ever create digitally. Watch this face. No. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've had, uh, I'm I'm just telling you, Meredith, a lot of founders have, have, have fessed up two things such as people not believing the internet would take off you know I just didn't think this thing called the internet would take off so you know <laughs> it's, it's the funniest thing I mean I think it goes to show you know this power of diversification not only does it keep our brands fresh but also I was talking to Tanya San, the founder of Ghost and she said you know through adversity she diversified and you know they created the fragrance the ghost fragrance and things like that and it really does go to show you I think of the global pandemic and now the cost of living crisis and absolutely we are you know we go through these things but this is where isn't it this is where the pivoting and the diversification and the creativity and the having to come up with solutions that meet the issues that we're dealing with just takes us into different realms for those listening, would you have any advice about that? If you're stuck in a rut or, you know, let's say that you, you're you tired of what you do, maybe, have you, can I ask, have you always been in love with what you do? Oh, goodness, do, do, no. I don't think any, no, I don't think any, really? I don't think any owner is. I can always find a joy in some of it. And that usually comes down to the design and the product. That's my first love. I love design. But there's definitely a slog that goes with it. And there's when your sales are slumping, it's really hard. When your competition is nipping at your heels, it's really hard. And it's back to the drawing board. So it does push you on. It goes back to, Holly, that thing we were talking about, that hard thinking that hurts. I have to I have to go in a new area. It feels uncomfortable. And I think you have to take yourself there. Yeah, I, I agree. It's highly rewarding if you do have the courage to go there. And get uncomfortable. We talk about sitting in the uncomfortable seat, you know, and how good it is for you. Um, We've actually got an image of a concrete bar stool and we've actually put the words, the uncomfortable seat on it (laughs) because it's almost reminding you that if you get too cosy in your lovely velvet seat with cushions and everything like that, actually sometimes you've really got to be uncomfortable to progress. Um, I want to actually talking of environments, when I look at images, of where you work the the it's it's so much joy it feels like heaven um you know tell us about your area and your beautiful studio and the team that you've built because I'm currently developing some things as well and actually how we work as creatives is so important isn't it and the team that we have and that fuel we get from them well I think your team is everything and we have the most extraordinary team. I have so many long-term employees and designers and from the top to the bottom, I have marriages, people that have met here and married. I, I could just go on. I I guess I've, I, that's my business model. I like that. Some people there are companies that have different business models. They, they like the freshness and the change and they want people moving in and moving on. And I don't think there's a right or wrong, but I like the comfort of that. So I have had two, I've had two thoughts on that. That's how I've grown my business. But in order to keep good people, I have to be changing all the time as well because they get bored. My team would not want to keep designing greeting cards or paper plates. They wouldn't be here if that's what they were doing. So that also keeps me going because I need to come up with fun things for my team so that they're continually challenged. That's been our business model and it's worked to keep us relevant at the top of the game 
uh, you know, and a team in place that I love working with. I would love to just dig into this a bit. I mean, where where you work is a converted Victorian warehouse um, and it's just absolutely, everyone just should have a look at it. It's absolutely beautiful. But I love what you're saying here because if you think about it, what we're spoon-fed in the sort of business Bible or the way people do things, you know, it is all about, um, let's say you said that someone had worked there five years, either they would think, "Mm, why haven't you moved on? Or actually, if you are employing that person, it's like, well, are they getting stale? Should I move on from them, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm with, I'm in your camp, by the way. Um, I look at businesses that I've interviewed on this podcast and they talk to me about how they've had the same um, team around them for 20 years. Um, And I think, well, A, it's smart because if you've got that talent that's been able to grow this business for 20 years, um, the the consistency, you look at all the big companies at the moment and when they have inconsistency in management what happens um and the, it's it's so disruptive but also that that love that you must have from those people you know you're not going to hold on to bad people but actually it's the love the fat and maybe families overused in the hr perspective but i i truly believe that if you can work with people and keep them creatively stimulated and it is a connection like no other, you know, really every day you're doing something um, that I I would think for a lot of people listening that that's comfort because I think we're told the opposite. I think that that's how we feel we're maybe being quite female in our attitude of management. Um, Tell me your longest employees, how how long have they been with you? I I think it's probably Sarah in the US who's it must be, it could be 25 years, 27 years. I mean, she, she was working with us from the time she was in high school at 16. And then she went off to university. And then I knew we needed to hire her. I thought, I need to offer her a job or I'm going to lose her. She was so great when she was part-time at high school. I feel wow. badly not knowing. It's a, it's a long time. And then in the UK, I think my longest is 24 years and then I have a lot of twenties, eighteens. Um, we did a we did a long term employee reward uh, system we put in place last year. So, which was I felt so excited that we could do that. Anyway, it it works for me. I um, yeah, it's a it's just really a beautiful team in a really lovely building in the middle of the Cotswolds. It's very special. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is the power we have now as founders to actually create the bubble that we live in, you know, create the brand bubble. That's that is uh, the most incredible power of a founder. And there's no apology to anybody else is required. It's like if we're happy, we're creating this brand. We live the way we want to live. How amazing that you can do things less ordinary. I like to use the analogy that we're like shipmates and that sort of my job is really just to to steer us through the waters, you know, whether it's choppy or calm waters, um, keep keep the wind flowing through our sails. But really, the, the 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 it's all about the shipmates, you know. That's that's actually who runs the company, who 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 does the work, and it's it's a I think it's a real privilege, uh, uh, probably the biggest privilege of my life, if I'm honest with you. It is, isn't it? And it's a big responsibility. If people have handed you their careers to look after. And I think you need to take it seriously. Yeah. Tell me, copying. I'd love to ask you about that. Um, A lot of our small businesses and people that I know, um, so other people that I've interviewed on this podcast and, um, and their views, but also small businesses and how unprotected sometimes they do feel, you know, copying is in the world that we're living in. And thanks to digitization and everything, you know, you can just literally look at anything, can't you, at any point in time. How have you dealt with copycats over the years? And what's your philosophy? Everything is inspired by something else. That's that. That's the truth. So I think there, there's, there's that aspect of it and that you need to let go. The part that I find tricky is a few times we've created niches in the marketplace and we've worked hard to create those niches. So when I, 
started with handmade greeting cards. There really were no handmade greeting cards. It wasn't a, it wasn't really a, a brilliant business model. Greeting cards were enormously printed greeting cards. My husband went to business school and it was a case study. They, you know, if you get it right, it was like printing money. And that was why it was a case study. But ours weren't printed. Ours were handmade. And there was a lot of labor and a lot of parts and a lot of pieces and traveling back and forth from Mexico as we talked it. So I didn't, I never really thought anybody would copy that concept. It just, I thought, why would you do this? I wish I could print cards. And, but it happened. It came up slowly. I kept seeing it sort of nipping at us. And I realized I should have been watching it more. Not that I would have known exactly what to do, but it came. And I think the same thing happened with party. We created a niche in the marketplace and then other people saw this is, this is a possibility and that's what happens. So I, I feel, I guess what I do now is I, I try to be more aware about it earlier on so that I can look to what other directions we're going because I know they're coming after our sales. And that's just the nature of business. It's really annoying. It's hard, especially if you're counting on the sales from those product to run your business. It's not even the anger of being copied, but you've got a ship to steer. And it, mm-hmm. And that really, the way I deal with it is I'm now looking backwards and forwards and continually thinking, what's our next move? What's our next move? What's our next move? And that is always going to be the issue with a company that's a creative leader. It's, it's very easy for large companies copy you and it's a good formula for them because they don't have heavy design fees. So that's just the nature of the game. But yet that is also why and would you agree that investing and making sure your brand is recognizable, has values. And I'm going to talk to you now about your, you know, the sustainability that um, you are so passionate about. The, the, this is where the brand uh, lives, isn't it? Because they can, they can just come and copy you. That's fine. Quality goes down. It's the tail end. But actually, it's the company. It's you, Meredith, being behind it. It's women knowing that you're behind the design. You know, that means something to them. And I think sometimes we can leave our brands, can't we, to the bottom of the to-do list because there's so many other things to do. But actually, at the end of the day, if you want to protect those sales for longer, that's where you're trying to bring people into your heart and your soul. Holly, I could not agree with you more. And I am very late to the game in the branding department. I was in my 20s and Bottega Veneta had a ad campaign that said, when your own initials are enough. And I thought that was just brilliant. Right. Mm. Mm. This was, this was when all the logos were starting and they were really loud and garish. And I thought, this is not me. So we used to just put our logo quietly on the back of everything we did. Every single thing we did, a little logo on the back. Mm -hmm. I went to visit a company about maybe 12 years ago called Big Fish. I don't know if you know Big Fish. They're uh, down by Chelsea Harbor and they're a design agency in London run by Perry Hayden Taylor. He's fabulous. Oh my God, this makes me laugh. He did our logo for Holly & Co. Oh, you'll love it. I knew, I knew. There's so many things I need to tell you that I literally want to go snap, snap, married at 21, snap, you know, for things, (laughs) snap. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, absolutely. Yes. Amazing, a miracle, a wonderful company. He's He's a sharp guy. So I went and I said, I don't know what to do. I'm exhausted. And I know I'm sitting on a gold mine. I don't know how to move it forward. I need some help. I, you know, I, I sort of dragged myself in. And he said, Meredith, everybody knows who your company is. Just nobody knows who it is. Everybody, all the stores own your business. You don't own your business. When your products are on the shelf at Selfridges, it looks like it's Selfridges product. When they're on Harrods, it looks like it's Harrods product. You've got to get your logo on the front. I went back to the studio the next day and that logo went on the front of everything and I just kept enlarging it. <laughs> I thought this is just utter madness. 
brilliant. And that and that's been the change, has it? Yeah, I never looked back. And the hardest part for me has been I'm a pretty private person and I'm I'm a very friendly introvert, but I'm I'm extremely happy behind the camera. I'm not a front of camera person. And I realized I have to put myself out there. People want a face. They, this is the day and age where people want to know who and what they're buying and where. And I have to, I am the true spokesman for the company and I have to learn those skills just like I've learned all the other skills. So, and I think I owe it to the company to do that. And now I'm getting, I'm, we're, we're putting it everywhere. We're, I guess we've, we should be, we're just, we just should celebrate all that we have to share as opposed to, I always felt, well, the products were so beautiful. Isn't that enough? But it isn't. And that's not branding. Every week, I hand this part of the podcast over to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. Dell are passionate supporters of female entrepreneurs and to date have positively impacted over 91,000 female founders through Dwen, the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. Just like Holly & Co, Dwen understands the power of community. And for more than a decade, Dwen has been connecting female entrepreneurs, providing a platform to share ideas, create support networks and inspire change. The Dwen community welcomes female founders at all stages of their journey. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, joining the community will connect you with like-minded women, give you access to valuable resources, best practice tips, and lots more to support you on your business journey. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. In a day and age where everything else is taken over from VCs to, um, you know, just being an, a part of a pension fund, et cetera, et cetera, you go and look on the rest, you know, the high street and you see all the restaurants and you, you want to think that there's a founder behind this food that I'm actually ingesting. And actually, it's a VC company. And so this is where I think I totally agree with you. People want to know, is this the truth? Is this the truth? Do, do, does the founder or the owner of this business have my back? And that is where we can absolutely um, change the directions of consumers by by just being ourselves, I hope, you know, by putting yourself out as the person who's created this over what nearly, well, how many decades, many decades now. So Almost it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, 40 years, you know, you er you've earned that. And that's what the brand needs. And tell me about when you, you think about, I read um, the UK government will ban the use of single plastic tableware from October this year. And the reality of truly being sustainable, um, because actually I've spoken to jewellers and I've spoken to designers and with the best of intentions, it's very hard to understand. And we, we're talking about brand here as well. Very hard to understand where every single element comes from. And I've always spoken about how as long as you're taking consumers on the journey, I think that's the most important thing, that that's where you're going. How can each one of us play a part in in doing better? That is a question we ask continually in the studio. It is really a challenge. So it's, it is interesting. I think that... Um, Everybody should be doing their part. Everybody can make changes, small, large, they're all going to have an impact. We, when we first realized how important this issue was, we went through every single thing we do in the company to see what we could change instantly. What are, the, what are some of the things that we could just pivot from how we package our boxes to the paper tape that we now use instead of plastic tape on our shipping boxes to the size of, you know, what can we, what can we package without acetate? Where can we reduce the acetate? Every area, we took plastic coatings off of everything that could take plastic coatings. It, it, and I think that's, that's been our view with everything that we're developing. What, how, what is the most environmentally friendly way for us to develop this product. And that's how we're managing it. We switched all new pro products with new glitter to glitter that's made ecologically. What I can't do, I won't do, 
is greenwashing. I can't say things aren't what they are. Like if you really think about it, the world doesn't need anything at all, but the world needs business and the people need to make a living. So, you know, it's, it's a balance on how we're going to do it. And I think from what I understand in my limited knowledge that if we all consume less and think about our packaging better and there's less waste with what we do, it's going to make a difference. When we designed our, going back to Garland's, I always assumed people would pack them away and use them again. They just, there's so much work in them. It just didn't, I thought, I always imagined them hanging in the bedroom afterwards. There was no reason that these garlands wouldn't hang in the bedroom afterwards. So now we encourage that more. You know, we definitely make products that are meant to be used over and over again. Greenwashing and what you're saying is where, again, you as a brand come to the forefront. You know, so as a customer, I'm listening to you and you're like, well, I'm not going to greenwash you. So then when I'm reading your packaging and it's telling me what you're doing to move things forward using better glitter, et cetera, et cetera, I now believe you because that's the whole point, isn't it, of the authenticity of that story coming through. And I just don't understand. I, I'm a keen, keen party decor hoarder, maybe is the better word. Um, <laughs> so I have your hats and things. I have all of those things. So I will have a box full of party hats. Now, I brought out some party hats for one of my colleagues um, the other day. And I had to actually take it out. And it had a f number four on it, which my son is 19, right? So <laughs> now I'm very proud of that. My husband thought, oh my, do you just keep so much stuff? But I have got the party hats of decades there, right? And so that is, again, as you were saying, I think that there's a way also that us consumers, it's not just in the founder and the business's responsibility. It's also in our consumer mind. You know, when we're buying your garlands, we should be keeping them. You know, right. that's the whole, it, right. it's a two-way street, I think, as well, isn't it? And really, it, again, it's in that power of our storytelling as founders that we can sort of say, you know, this is how you could use it in the future. So, I'm just I'm just with you. I just want to let you know I've got many of your things though very neatly tucked away probably still in the little packets I bought them in. So oh, just that wanted makes to put that really out there. Happy. That thank you um, Molly. Oh, you're very welcome. So 38 years, I think, is your time of bringing us creativity, colour and magic. And we're coming to the end of this podcast. And uh, as I said, just too many things I just felt that have collided here in this conversation and how much I just uh, adore what you've done and, and your philosophy and you've ignited me today. I want to ask you a couple of questions that I ask at the end of each podcast, which is, and I know I've used the ship analogy, which if I actually go back in my podcast, I use it quite a lot. Maybe I was a, a, at sea in my, an earlier life or something, <laughs> but I've got this obsession with seas and captains and all this sort of stuff. But the, the analogy I want to use right now is being on an epic roller coaster. You know, if, if the last 38 years has been the ups and downs in your company, could you share with us what has been one of your biggest lows through your career? Well, I I mean nothing's like been like the uh, you know the COVID pandemic. I think that that was just utterly brutal. It was almost it felt like overnight the shutters just came down, and I had you know twelve staff that I had to make redundant, and you know the process of doing that and doing it over Zoom, you know several meetings was. I still am haunted by it because there would be no reason other than our business. I had to reduce our business by 40% and that was it. And I think having been through the 2008, 2009 recession, you know, the crash, we were fortunate to ride that, but I knew I had to act swiftly that it was, I, I, I wasn't going to have time to think every little thing through. And it was a, I think I don't know if I'll ever get over that. And tell me, though, in that time, what happened to you during the pandemic? Was it that everything crashed around you? But then did it did we start to I can't I can't even remember. Did we start to do things at home and want to celebrate at home? Or was it a very bleak period for you? Well, there are a few things that happened. So I had to cut our overhead, which was 
as they say, I had to right size the business for the amount of revenue that I thought would be coming in. And I had to hold on to our cash, which as you know, most small businesses know cash is king. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's something I've always been very conscious of. We don't have any debt. I've never really wanted to borrow much. So, so I did two things. One is I turned all of our accounts that were net 30 accounts into um, prepay. I got rid of all net 30. Um, and that I, means I, people paying you in 30 days, does that's it? That's right. I took, I took credit away from everybody, which I think there was a rumble, but I just thought I'm not going to have any money outstanding there. So that was one thing that I did to ensure that it kept cash coming in. The other thing, we were really fortunate that our online business was growing. So while the wholesale business just died, uh, the online business, the other thing we were that kept us going was because we're global, not all of the world was shut down at the same time. So the U.S. and not all of the U.S. was shut down. So business was trickling in. It wasn't ideal, but it was enough business that kept us going. I would have thought that parties would end and and parties as we know it ended, but people still celebrated their children's birthdays. So while they may not have bought five packs of paper, paper plates, they bought one pack of paper plates and they bought maybe three boxes of balloons and more garland so that they could really decorate the house. So we just sort of muddled through and people's shopping patterns weren't as horrible as I thought they were going to be. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Tell me, Meredith, the high, when you were on that roller coaster, your wind in your hair, you've got garlands all wrapped around you, <laughs> you've got party hats, the whole thing, right? What what, what would you say has been that great high for you? <gasps> oh, that's really funny. Well, I think probably the greatest high was really early on when Bergdorf Goodman placed their first order for greeting cards and it pretty much took up a whole wall in their stationary department. And I knew we were, I knew I was on to something. I thought we're going to, we're going to make it. So, so everything else, there were lots of little successes. Our collaboration with Liberty was a really big high. First order from Harrods was a really big high. Pop-up shop in Harrods was an extraordinary high. They gave us a whole big space, which they continue to do every Christmas. And we have a wonderful space and a fabulous relationship with that lovely store. So there's been a lot amazing. of amazing, Fantastic. Amazing. And I, I just love that your, um, that your husband uh, uh, had done a, a, a um, case study on basically how your business really shouldn't have worked. Right. Right. I mean, exactly. and there you have, and then you've got this whole wall and things like this. I, I love it when things like that happen. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. That's what you read in papers. That's what you do. I'm doing it. And this is how, you know, and no one's going to tell me because I've got the entrepreneur DNA. What's the thing that we just talked about? It, you're hitting it down and it would pop back up. Yeah. The weevil, weevils that wobble, wait, weevils that wobble, but they won't fall down or something like that. We- <laughs> there you go. That's you. That's Meredith, basically. Right. This has just been the most glorious conversation and I, I I know it's going to be very inspiring to a lot of people and that creativity plus that business and that vision and that gut feel I think a lot of people can empathize with and you've just really shone a light on how it's done it's that time though now I'm going to ask you to read a letter to your younger self and I don't know what you're going to say but whatever it is I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with us today and for sharing a part of your soul Thank you very much, Holly, for having me. I was really honored to be included in your podcast library. Oh, my goodness. This is incredible. Over to you. Okay. I'm writing to my 20-year-old self as it's about the time I wish I'd had this advice. Hello, Meredith. If I could give you just one piece of life-changing advice, it would be get a dog. They will make you so happy. If you're ready for more, this is what I would like to share. You are going to have a business, and it won't be small. It is in your genes. You love to make things, so it's going to be creative and involve manufacturing. Go to university and study art. Learn to draw well. It will make your life so much easier. While you are there, take some business classes too. Learn to read a balance sheet and get some basic accounting skills. 
get organized and develop some good systems. Keeping everything in your head is crazy and hard on you and everyone around you. Be confident in your ability and talent. Hear others, but trust yourself. You are capable of so much more than you think. Don't easily give the power away. You can look after your team and your company better than anyone else. Accept this position and lead with open-mindedness, compassion, and care. It is important to surround yourself with people who are more talented than you and with different skills than yours. Build your team carefully and support them well. They are the foundation of a successful company. Think before you speak and think extra hard before you criticize. It is crucial not to be embarrassed by success at work or in life. It will give security and freedom. It will give you options for your business and the ability to better look after your team. Choose your life partner very thoughtfully. Wait to marry until you know yourself. Make sure they are calm, kind, generous, and understand the importance of family and community. They need to be ambitious and excited by all the opportunities life has to offer. You will be in conflict if you feel like you are being held back. Be easy on your children. They hear everything you say with a megaphone. Coach them and support them, but don't push them too hard. Introduce them to as much of the world and as many things as possible. Don't try and steer them. You really have no idea what their passions will be. Always exercise. Aerobic exercise sets you up for the day. Learn to play tennis. It is fun, social, and a great form of exercise. If you don't learn, you are going to be jealous of every tennis player you see. Spend more time sailing. It will feed your soul. Read the news from the most objective sources you can find. Always really know what is going on in the world. Stay current in arts and commerce. This will all help inform business decisions and personal ones too. It will also keep you young. Fight for the causes and people you believe in. Always look after your family and friends. You will be lost without them. Always set the table. Show up to important events. Milestones matter. They may not even know you are there, but you will know. Cherish your sister dearly. She has been and always will be your greatest fan. Everyone wishes that she was their sister. How lucky you are that she is yours. Be kind to everyone. Have a bit of time for everyone. And please be kind to yourself. And get that dog. (laughs) What advice. What advice. I know everyone's just sitting, listening to your advice now, just taking it on board now, let alone when, yes, you wish you'd heard that at 20. I love what you just said there. Don't give the power away, I think is... um, as women and, and, and especially in business, that we can give it away so easily with our insecurities. Absolutely. Um, and it can lead us to getting into hot water. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I, I believe in that. And I believe in you and what you're building. And I just thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything um, that you're doing for us all, but also for branding and for women. And um, thank you. Thank you so much, Holly. This was an absolute joy. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love. Mm